So we, we really punted on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, our sermon was about hypocrisy, Christian hypocrisy. And so there was just an uprising of anger and misery. Uh, yeah, it was a real disaster. Um, and every, lots of people came up to me and like, no, no, you don't understand. On Mother's Day, you do a sermon about mothers. And on Father's Day, you do a sermon about fathers. I was like, well, there's only so much you can say. I mean, if I did that every year, okay, fine, you win. We're going to have a Father's Day sermon. Fair enough. As you wish. Um, part of the interesting thing about Father's Day, especially this text that we're looking at, is that uh, this text sort of, it, it, we're going to be able to abstract some principles out of it, but it, it comes from a very different culture, a very wacky like place, something that we're not familiar with. And I hope as we, as we see what happens is Paul is trying to think about how to inject Christian faith into a pagan culture. And I would suggest that actually where, we're, where we are as, um, as, as Christians today is in the same sort of situation. Maybe it was the case that 50 years ago, uh, this was a Christian nation. I don't know, I wasn't around. Uh, I have my doubts, but maybe it was. But if it was, it's certainly not now. It's certainly post-Christian now. Uh, we're in a kind of a neo-pagan, we're entering into a neo-pagan sort of era. And so interestingly, I think that these texts where Paul's speaking to uh, the Greco-Roman world, Christians in the Greco-Roman world, I think that they have a powerful impact and, and can really teach us how we should think Christianly about, in this case, being a dad. So let's take a look at this text. Uh, this is from Ephesians 5 and then a, a little bit of 6. It's, a, it's about how to, how to dad. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but feeds and takes care of it, just as the Lord does the church. I'm going to drop down to uh, 6.4 here. And you, fathers, do not antagonize your children, but bring them up in the guidance and course correction that comes from the Lord. If you're familiar with the New King James text, you'll notice that I've made some, some changes there. We'll talk about those. But the first thing we need to understand is that we're hearing this, and it might sound like what we should do is we should just do you know, exactly what Paul says. Like We should just ignore the context. We can't do that. It's really critical that we understand the kind of place that Paul's talking to. And so in the Greco-Roman world, the most important thing to understand is that the basic unit of like a society or a culture was the household. The household. And what this section in Ephesians, there's a similar one in Colossians, is doing is it's, it's adapting Greco-Roman household codes. We have all the way back from, from as early as like Aristotle up to three, four hundred AD, almost a thousand years of Roman philosophers, uh, Greek philosophers, who had thought deeply about how to make, uh, the house, uh, uh the state a safe, you know, stable thing. Like the, the, their, their, their job was to say, how can we make the state strong and powerful? And what they all decided was that in order to do that, the nation state had to be based on these little units, households, right? And if you had a whole bunch of strong households, then you would have a strong nation. And at the heads of every single one of these households, you had the paterfamilias, the, the, the father of the family, the, the, the king, the, 
the chief, the best. If you're wondering, we hear household in, in, in our context, and we tend to think about uh, what, you know, ideally here in Southern California, like a detached home, but probably a condo. Um, and inside, you know, uh, maybe one or two parents, depending. Uh, nowadays, sometimes more. Um, and then also maybe a child, at least a golden retriever that you treat like a child, something like that. That's our notion of a household. That's not the Greco-Roman notion of a household. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking to paterfamilias. A household in the Greco-Roman world would be something more like a vineyard. So if you imagine like you had a big vineyard, you go to Italy, I think you can still see these, right? Where there's like a castle and there's, uh, there's rows and rows of, of, of grapes. And in order to make a vineyard function, you didn't just have, you know, mom, dad, and 2.5 kids. Uh, instead, you had like basically, you know, 50 to 100 people, some, a lot of whom are related, extended family, uh, some who are hired hands, some perhaps slaves or indentured servants. Uh, but you have like a whole bunch of people that are responsible for putting it all together. And at the top of that, at the top of that is the Potter Familius. That is the basic unit of organization in the Greco-Roman world. Now, that's a pretty big responsibility. I have three children and one dog, and that is a lot more than I can handle most days. I can't imagine also having to provide and shelter, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and slaves and servants. I mean, that would be just mind-boggling. But that's what happened in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, uh, Aristotle is the very first person to try and explain how a household ought to run. I have a, a quote from him here. This is Aristotle. It's in his politics. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves. Uh, let's not worry about masters and slaves. First off, it's way different in the Greco-Roman world than what we're used to, and, and it's just it's distracting for this sermon. Another of a father and a third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal or kingly rule, over his wife a constitutional rule. Uh, for although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. I always like to point out that Aristotle thought of women as defective men. Uh, he was a real swell guy. Uh, and you can, if you wonder where the patriarchy comes from, <laughs> he had a lot to do with it. Uh, interesting, though, you notice the rule. First, the ruling language. You can understand why that matters, right? Because in the Greco-Roman world, the whole point here is stability. We want households that function, that work, right? And notice that there's different kinds of rule that this guy exercises. We do know, by the way, that in the Greco-Roman world, there were women who were heads of household, especially if like they were widowers or they inherited um, from their parents. And so and that's why Aristotle says there may be exceptions to the order of nature. But in general, this is the ideal, right? He says the rule over children being kingly. Uh, fathers in the ancient world had almost godlike control over their kids. You could savagely beat your children and nobody cared. True fact. So we should go back. It was better back then. I can say that now because I'm an adult. Like when you're a kid, that seems really horrible. And it actually leads to cycles of horrible abuse. But we'll talk about that later. Over his uh, wife, a constitutional rule. Uh, in Aristotle's mind, the... <laughs> The wife is not, is not to be, you know, have godlike authority. She gets a say in some things. She's allowed to have some advice. 
Like, wait, uh, that's what he means by constitutional, like, uh, that there's some representative government there, where she's like, wait, husband, are you sure we want to do this? Uh, but in, indeed, he does rule, and so if he, if he vetoes that, uh, he does have that, um, that, that right. That's a pretty stark kind of way to run your culture. It's pretty harsh. And you might notice, I mean, if you think that, you know, Aristotle is really one of the backbones of Western culture, it might not be surprising to you that we have, uh, you know, the 1950s sort of stereotype of what the, the household looked like. Do I have some photos of that? Yeah. So, you know, dad comes home from work. She's waiting with a martini. Uh, he... He's, uh, you know, he's there relaxing. He has, like, breakfast in bed. She's kneeling before him. I mean, you can see where that sort of mentality came from. The difference, though, and the difference here is very important. This is a nuclear home, what we're used to in the, in the States, right? This is like a, you've got your house in the suburbs. Your house looks like the one next to it, and everybody's house looks the same. And, but it's only you and your 2.5 kids and your golden retriever in there. It's not this massive estate. So with bearing that in mind, let's look at what Paul says again. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Wait, wait what? <laughs> Husbands, rule your wives. They might have a say. No, no, no. This is an interesting fact. Uh, so we have almost a thousand years of household codes from the Greco-Roman world. There is only one author in all of the Greco-Roman world who uses this word agape, agapao, for love, and it's Paul. The only other times that love is mentioned in the Greco-Roman household codes is, is either eros, meaning romantic love, or, uh, or philos, like uh, filial, or love for your brother, sister, uh, son, daughter. That's the only kind of love that Greco-Roman philosophers talked about. Only Paul, in the entire history of household codes, uses the word agape. And what is agape? And, and agape, that type of love, that, that notion of love, is a self-emptying, self-giving type of love. And he points it out. He's like, if you're wondering what it's like, just look at what Jesus did. He gave himself for the church. He emptied himself. He gave himself for the church. And he did it for a reason. Why? Uh, the language there is it's, it's stark. You know, the ancient world is a very dirty place. Um, if you've been to a, a developing country or a third world country, one of the most interesting things when you step off the plane, what smacks you first is the smell. Um, I remember the first time I went to Haiti, like, I got off the plane, it was like burning tires. And I was like, this is not going to be a fun trip. I don't like this at all. Whereas you get off the plane in a first world country like Japan, you get off and you're like, ah, someone put fragrance into the air. Is that in and out I smell? We, we're, we're very conscious about that in first world countries. The ancient world was not like that. In fact, you were dirty most of the time. Uh, one of the few times in your life would be really, really clean would be on your wedding day. You're getting ready. It's, and so you're washed. And really, I mean, people would, would have, they would have dirt on their, in their hair. And, 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 and what Paul thinks is he thinks that Jesus' action on the cross is very much like uh, what the love he shows on the cross is very much like when you're getting ready for your wedding day. He's so there, he's scrubbing. Right? He's scrubbing and he's washing. His, his self-emptying, self-giving love is, is changing you. 
Uh, down at the bottom there, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own body or flesh, but feeds and takes care of it. Uh, the New King James, a little wacky there, I've edited uh, New King James, because uh, nourish and cherish. But really, it's the, it's the same, the, the, the language is very similar to what you would get if, like, you're a teenager, right? And you're a teenager, and you're scrawny, and you're weak. And you're looking in the mirror, and you're like, oh, this is no good. And then, and then you look on the TV and you see like some male model who's like buff, whatever, and you're like, I could be that, right? But I gotta start feeding and taking care of myself. I gotta watch what I eat. I gotta work out. I gotta work hard. There's a potential that I have to reach. And if I do the right stuff, I can get there. That's the kind of mentality that Paul says we have about our own bodies. Men, that's what you're gonna have towards your wife. Who knows the difference between a good rom-com and a bad rom-com? Catherine Heigl's not in it. Yes, correct. But also, something else. Uh, do, we have the, do we have the photo here? Yeah. Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, probably terrible people, but I, you got to hand it to these two. They've been in two films that are pretty much great rom-coms. They were in uh, the La La Land, which you saw. That it's, uh, but he's like a jazz pianist. I, the, I I refused to see the movie to begin with because jazz is such a horrible form of music. And it's like it's just such a big waste of time. But I, I finally sat down and watched it. And I was like, if you can get past the jazz, it is a great story. Uh, Emma Stone. Also, they were also in uh, Crazy Stu- John. I, it's not. Don't laugh at me, man. I, it's too much going all over the place. I'm like, get back to the hook. Where's the hook? Uh, Emma Stone, they were also in Crazy Stupid Love, uh, Crazy Stupid Love with Steve Carell. Those are two pretty phenomenal rom-coms. Not appropriate for children, of course, but, but pretty good. And the, and the reason is, the reason is this. A, a terrible rom-com, and I like terrible rom-coms too. As Father's Day, I admit it, I'm, you, know, you, you put me in front of any rom-com and I'll enjoy it. I, I don't know why I'm weak that way. Uh, but I know the difference. The difference is, in a bad rom-com, what's going on is there's, the problem is that there's miscommunication, right? From the very first time that we, that Joe and Sue meet, we know that they're meant for each other. They're perfect for each other. But they don't know it. She's amazing. She's talented, hardworking, like, you know, and he's secretly caring and, and, and loving, but he has a gruff exterior. And if she could just see past that because his, his brother died, and you know how it goes. And once they, once they finally get to the point where they see each other for the first time, they get together. Nobody has to change. They're already perfect. They're already wonderful. They're, 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 their story is made in Wonderland. A great rom-com, however, has a different vibe. It's got a vibe where there's two people who are, they're broken in some way. They're, they're badly fractured. I would say the, the cool thing about the Gosling Stone, the La La Land and the Crazy Stupid Love is in both cases, when you meet Ryan Gosling's character, you're like, this guy's terrible. Like, he's not a good guy. Uh, in, in Crazy Stupid Love, he's a, he's a, he's a cat. He's a player. Um, in La La Land, he's an arrogant jerk. In both cases, it's his relationship with uh, the girl where, where he's, she starts to change him. Love starts to get in the way and starts to break down. And he starts to recognize, uh, instead of being an arrogant jerk, I should be more focused on what she could become. And in, in, in La La Land, it's his, his, his uh, confidence for her that causes her to, to, to flourish as a human. 
He, he starts to become someone who actually cares about other people other than himself in Crazy Stupid Love. He starts to realize that, that relationships aren't just about, um, you know, physicality. Instead, that there is, there's a deeper spiritual, emotional, psychological connection that is, is an ideal. And he recognizes that in love. Paul takes it to the next level. You'll get that in Greco-Roman literature. They'll say, oh yeah, love can change you. Love can, but it's always like romantic love. It's always filial love. Paul says, no, the real love that changes you is the love of the cross. The self-giving, self-emptying love of the cross. When Jesus did that, he did that to transform you. He did that to transform the church so the whole church comes to Jesus messed up, broken, fractured, wrecked human beings. But in that love, experiencing that love, receiving that love, we as a community become changed into what he wants us to become. And then Paul says, guess what, guys? I want you to do the same thing to her. First thing you know, she said, Dad's trans- Dad transforms us through self-giving love. It's a, it's a mystical process, and, and I, I, we skipped over some of the parts where Paul gets into the mysticism of it. Because it is, it's very strange. It, it's hard for us to, to parse out exactly how love changes us, but we know that it does. We know that when we experience someone's self-giving love, we are moved and transformed. And so, Dad's like... For your wife and for your kids, that's, that's the call, is to self-empty, to self-give. Notice that this is in radical contradistinction to Aristotle and the Greco-Roman codes. They're looking for like stable households where like there's a governor and his name is, his name is Tom, right? And he's running around being like, you do this, you do that. Uh, Paul's like, uh, okay, you can be the pot of familias, Tom, but I want you to express that in self-giving love. Notice that this radically undermines the very notion of authority in the old way of thinking about it. Let's go uh, to the uh, sixth chapter of Ephesians, verse 4. And you fathers, do not antagonize your children, but bring them up in the guidance and course correction that comes from the Lord. Don't antagonize. I don't know what you think about that. The older version, do not provoke your children to wrath. That's a little bit. Some versions will say exasperate. Uh, do not anger your kids. It's a little bit distant from us, I think, because we don't live in a culture of most of us where um, we're seeing fathers uh, like, like the, who's the worst father of all time? Coolest guy, worst dad. There he is. Clint Eastwood. Would you want to be raised by that man? No. You want to be that guy. You just don't want him to quote-unquote love you because it would be horrible. Um, in our context, we're probably not used to what the ancient world was, where the, you know, savage beatings were a, a norm. Also, the trope of like, you know, the, the, the kid who's like trying to live up to dad's expectations, but dad's austere and, you know, just kind of away. And, and that, that's, that's less something that we're connected to nowadays. I would say that we're more, um, dads are kind of expected to be more like emotional and loving now. Um, Nevertheless, it is possible for us as dads to, uh, to really cause our kids to rebel, to, to, to really upset them. Uh, they're going to rebel I- anyway. Like, there's only way you can avoid that. But you can make it a lot worse if you are poking them all the time with your demands, with your, your you know, anger, with your, um, you know, I got top right there yelling at the ref, and the kid's like, please, dad, you're making me, you're embarrassing me. 
If I ever uh, end up in the hospital or arrested for being in a fight, it'll probably be because I'm at a, like a soccer game, and there's like that dad down the road who's like, just keeps yelling at the ref and yelling at his kid or the other kids that are making his kid look bad, and I'll start talking. I'll be like, yeah, dude, settle down. What are you doing, man? Come on. Easy. And he's going to get mad. He's going to come over. He's going to cold cock me, and he's going to knock me right out. That's probably going to happen at some point. I'm ready. I just, I, it, it, well, it just drives me nuts because you're looking at it and you're like, dude, first off, there's six. Okay, so I don't know how helpful it's going to be for you to be like, get back on defense. Like, she doesn't know what defense means, man. Like, come on. You know, so, and you can just imagine, that's what he's doing when she's six. When she's 13, oh, dear Lord. Disaster. That's a great way to get, you know, your kids to push back. Uh, Shame, anger. These are effective tools uh, for um, wrecking human lives. Uh, probably need to step back from those things. That's kind of where Paul's at. Again, Paul's in a, in a universe where the, the, the pressure on, on the household master is, is very high, and he's got to have his kids in line so that everybody else recognizes that they too need to be in line, right? His kids are an example for everybody. So, so he's got to really come down hard on them so that everybody knows that, that you know, they're in danger. What does Paul uh, say instead? He says, instead of um, angering them, you know, bring them up in the guidance and course correction that comes from the Lord. Uh, we actually had it in our vows. Uh, the training and admonition, that's the old New King James. Uh, in Greek, it's uh, enpaidea. It's a, a word closely related to um, our, our word pedagogy. We get it from pedagogos. Uh, that's a closely re- related word to enpaidea. And it's, it's like it's instruction. It's leading, right? Like instead of, instead of get back on defense, it's, it's more like, um, hey, honey, uh, we don't want them to get the ball in the goal. That is the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish here. See, so what we're doing, we're trying to win this game. Here, here's kind of where you're headed. But unlike regular guidance, notice this, it comes from the Lord. It's, it's, it's the Lord's guidance. That means that, guys, I know we all want our kids to be investment bankers. We all want them to be rock stars, just somebody who can pay for, uh, for me, I don't own any property, so someone who can buy me a house in my dotage. That's kind of my, like, where I want the kids to go. Um, but that's not necessarily where God wants them to go. And, and, and again, notice, you know, the, the contrast to, like, the household codes where, hey, we're, hey, you know, we're bringing up kids to, like, be the stable, you know, force for the, the country. That's not what Paul's about. Paul's like, no, what we're doing is we're, we're transforming kids into what God wants them to be, doing what God wants them to do. That's where we're headed. I'll skip the picture and just go straight to the next thing in your note sheets. Dad directs us to God's way, not his way. Dad directs us to go God's way, not his way. I think it's a pretty powerful thing. Um, just uh, So our, our worship pastor, Doug, love this guy. We've done ministry together for a long time. One of the cool things about Doug is that uh, his dad is like a super successful accountant. I mean, he's like retired and he goes on cruises all the time. He's... A, He's an awesome guy. One of the cool things about Mike is that Mike Harrison, when raising his son, 
Instead of being like, you need to become an accountant like me. You need to be successful like me. You need to do these things. He's like, he's like Doug, what is God calling you to? And so, I mean, our worship pastor, is, he, he, he teaches elementary school, and he has a massive impact on young kids, especially young boys, over at Stony Brook Christian School, our partners in ministry. He has an eternal impact on people because, you know, when Mike Harrison was, was raising Doug Harrison, he wasn't saying, hey, what can I do to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that he's everything that I think uh, he should be? No, instead it was like, what is God guiding Doug? How can Doug become somebody that God shapes? How can he have an impact for God's uh, eternal kingdom? I don't want my kids. I don't want Soren to be an elementary school teacher. I want him to be fabulously wealthy. Right? Make that dollar. And yet, maybe when we're guiding the Lord's way, we're actually participating in something that's much bigger than just this life, you know? Uh, The last thing uh, that Paul says Course correction. Course correction that comes from the Lord. This is a admonition, warning. It's a, a nuthesia in, in the Greek. And really, it's always used. Uh, counsel that you give when someone's headed off course. So I just use the English uh, course correction. It's, it's the, you're like whispering in there, be like, no, no, not, not good, not good. Bad idea, bad idea. Hey, so some cool statistics that we have about fatherlessness. This is fun. 63% of youth suicides are kids without a dad. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders, kids without a dad. 71% of all high school dropouts, kids without a dad. Juvenile detention rate, 70% in state-operated institutions have no father in the home. 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers have no father in the home. What's really crazy is you start to break these down by sex and gender. It gets really frightening because it's uh, it, it, <laughs> the, uh, the, the males are the ones who disproportionately get just destroyed by this. Um, that this is, those statistics are men and women together, boys and girls. When you uh, separate the boys from the girls, you find out that the male presence in the home is like this. It's like the best determining factor for like not failure of a child. It, like, the number one. If you take away every, everything, if you put a father in a home, that, what is it, it's, uh, boys who grew up without dads are twice as likely, two times, 100% more likely to end up in jail than uh, boys with a father in the home. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. Now, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's interesting because in Paul's culture, he's talking to, you know, the leader of the household, and he's saying, like, you know, you need to do some course correction with your kids. Um, it, it's, he's probably not saying moms do that because, you know, in his world, moms aren't the ones who are in control of anything. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that we now have statistics? We know what it looks like when we have, uh, you know, the mom's there, but dad's not. It, it really does seem like there's some very strong, crazy correlation between father presence and especially male child success. Being there is a big deal. And I think part of that is because there's some, there's some element of course correction when it comes from that, and oh, by the way, course correction, that can be as, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, it can be really harsh or it can be really gentle. But the idea is you're going the wrong way and we've got to stop that. 
And there, there seems to be something about um, a dad's ability to, to do that that means, that means a lot. It's really important. Next thing you know, she's dad protects us from heading down the wrong path. Dad protects us from heading down the wrong path. Now, um, I said earlier, like, so what's going on here? Paul's, Paul's sort of undermining the household codes from the inside, right? He's, ex- he's, he's a part of a culture that, you know, assumes that, like, the, the, the vineyard is, like, the basic functioning part of a society. The society is built on a whole bunch of vineyards and merchants and whatever, households where one guy is in charge of a lot of different things. That's not the case anymore. Right? Even in the 1950s, as we noted, it was like, it was a, a home with mom, dad, and the kids. What's crazy is we've devolved even farther from that now in the 21st century, where we're at a place where it's more like, it's more like, um, the basic unit of, you know, the, what, what sort of underlies America. Now, it, it's not, it's not a household, it's not a home, it's not a family, it's an individual. Right? It's an individual. Like now, now are the people who run the show, and, and they're very well informed. They they believe that really we're all just individuals, economic units, and every individual plays their role in the society, and that's and that's where we're that's how it works now. We've gone from you know household to family to now just people, and we know this because uh, we, when we when we watch uh, movies. We know that the most important thing is that the protagonist finds his or her uh, path and actualizes his or herself and becomes happy. I uh, read a New York Times op-ed celebrating Pride Month uh, this last month. Uh, It was a a woman who had been a CNN anchor, and when she was 36 years old, married with two kids, she uh, was watching TV and realized that she was a lesbian. And so she left her family and her kids to go um, actualize herself with a new partner. This was a very, it was treated in the times as like this really empowering, self-actualizing moment. Well, it's interesting because what we see in that is we see that the culture as a a whole values not um, this connectivity, this community, the father, mother, kids, or whatever, or even just the family. It's really, it's about individual people becoming who they were meant to be, right? That's, that's kind of how our culture looks at it. What Paul did is he said, here's the household. I'm going to inject Christianity. I'm going to inject the self-emptying love of Christ into that and see what happens. This is the culture that I've been given. I, I, came, I, came in, I didn't invent the household. It's just how it is. But I do know that Jesus is the way, and I want to see what happens if we start living, dads, as, as Jesus lived. And, and then these principles start popping out. And so you can see over time... It, Honestly, what happened was the Greco-Roman household itself was changed forever. Similarly, we now live in the post-Christian West. We live in a universe and a world where uh, the the assumption is that um, really it's all about me and and, and making me happy. If we were to import, if we were to inject, if we were to add into that the self-giving love of Christ, how might that reorient us so that we rethink being a Christian dad in a post-Christian West? How might it change what we think about what it is to be a father? The first, have lots of kids. This is interesting because, uh, you know, when birth control came out 
you know, and became widely accessible in the 1960s, we obviously saw just a massive uh, decline in birth rates. What's interesting about that is that uh, people have done studies on happiness, right? And the question is, how many kids do you have to be to have to, have to get really happy? And and the answer is is zero. The yeah, it's a true fact. The less kids you have, the happier you are. Um, now that's on a short run. That's on a short run. Uh, it is true that um, that later in life, those uh, with with lots of kids and grandkids uh, tend to be. But you can see if I'm sitting here in my 30s and I'm like another one. Oh my gosh, I can't do this, right? That's kind of short-sighted thinking. It's the kind of thinking that's like, well, is having these kids about me, or is it about something else? I think what we see in the scriptures is we see God saying to, to, to us, dude, the family, it's not about you being happy, man. The family, it's about you being transformed through self-giving love. And one of the best ways to do that is to have more people to self-giving love to. But we're quitting at three. I can't do it anymore. Done. All right, number two. If you only have two, you're not good enough. If you have more than three... Well done. Make adults not perpetual adolescents. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, a, I, I'm a professor. Uh, I teach grad students. I have students who are in their uh, 20s and 30s who um, have never been told that they uh, have done a bad job. It's phenomenal. It's a really amazing... I'd be like, oh, you've never been told that that's not a good sentence in English? Let me help you. Uh, here's the deal. I've, I've, been, I've done a lot of schooling. I sort of feel like I know what I'm talking about. Next thing I know, their parents are calling me. Because we need to make sure that little Susie, you know, gets... No! Your job is to make adults. Not that. Number three, running out of time, don't outsource the raising of children. The easiest thing to do with kids, uh, thank God for the iPad and Roblox. When I, am, when I am exhausted, I can simply say, look at this screen, and problem solved. They'll look at that thing for 14, 15 hours straight. It's incredible. I love it. I love it. But, I, but also, I'm a little worried that maybe some of the stuff they're encountering on there might not be great. Um, and, and it could be, it doesn't have to be the screens. It can also be, you know, the, hey, I'm sent, the, the teachers will raise my kids. Look, I agree with you. The Doug is going to be an awesome teacher for your kids. But he can't do it all. In fact, when I talk to Doug, I, I, you know, I, I know he tells me, he tells the, the difference between the kids whose parents are engaged and the ones who's aren't, who aren't. It's noticeable. Number four. Correct your kids. They are not perfect and they need to be fixed. Oh my gosh. Aristotle was wrong about women, but he was right about children. Children are defective humans. They are broken and they need to be fixed. Your job is to like build them up into somebody that's not awful. If you don't, they will be awful. Like I, I know, I was one. It took a lot of smacking around of the, from, from life to realize, wait, I'm not all that? What? What? What is this? You have a job. I always make fun of my friend, Stev. He's not here today, but he, he does my hair. He has no kids. And I'm always like, Stev hates children. Stev always says this. He's like, I don't hate children. 
I hate children today. I hate children because, you know, you tell them to be quiet and they just keep screaming. He's like, back when I was a kid, my parents beat, beat me and I was quiet. When I, I'm like, okay, you're a little bit nuts and that's over the line. But I see your point, man. I get it. The kids aren't in charge. By the way, notice that every single one of these things is if we stop and we say, hey, instead of kids being about me and life being about me, instead, it's my job as a dad to be a self-giving lover of those around me. Then you can start to see why these things make sense, right? It's not about my happiness and my fulfillment. It's about fulfilling God's command to transform through love. Last but not least, let your kids see your spirituality. Dads, uh, you may not know this, but it's true. The number one predictor of whether or not your kids will go to church when they are adults is if they see you go to church as a child. Um, We don't have any statistical correlation between uh, mom going to church and church attendance as an adult. We do have phenomenal correlation. correlation between uh, kids who see their dad go to church and, and then continue. And it's not just church, of course. It's praying. It's uh, being engaged with uh, the scriptures. It's being a part of the Christian community. If the kids see you being spiritual, they will actually believe that spirituality is real. And they will imbibe that and it will become a part of their lives. Uh, that's the dad do- do- uh, job description. Um, and it's, it's a pretty tall order. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't deny it. And I think the, the last word on this and, and everything else should be grace. One of the cool things about being a part of this community is that we bear each other up. I'm not a perfect dad. Um, and neither are you. And that's okay. Because when we're together and we work it out together, we can sort of make up for each other's weaknesses and, and, and failures. And so dads, know that you're valued. Know that you matter. And know that what you do is going to change the lives of your kids forever. Let's pray. Gracious God, we uh, thank you for the gift of dads, the gift of fatherhood. Pray, God, that we'll um, take seriously the call and the charge to be um, good fathers. That we'll recognize that that Jesus' self-giving love, transformative love, is the measure of our masculinity. And God, I pray that uh, the the dads here at Coast um, will be born up in grace, forgiven for failure, and encouraged to step forward in transformation to be um, the men you've called them to be. Thank you for them and bless them today. In Jesus' name, amen.